Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Rob. I am delighted to continue our weekly Scripture reading with you, and today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, excuse me, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord." Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we worship you. We give you honor and glory. We praise you, Lord, in our hearts and our minds, with the the words of our mouth, the confessions of our lips, as we recount, remember afresh your wonderful works and deeds. How mighty, how awesome, how strong, how majestic, how glorious. You are high and lifted up, exalted, and we worship you here today. We adore you, O God. Thank you, our Lord Jesus, for the awesome price that you were willing to pay, the sacrifice that you made for us, that we would know you, know eternal life, that we would be set free from the bondage of sin, saved from the wrath to come, to be set free from the torment of everlasting hell and punishment. We have been taken out of, snatched out of, delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the glorious kingdom of light. And now we are sons and daughters of God. We are children of light And Lord, we praise you, we glorify you, because you did that. You did that for us, you did it in love, and you're worthy of all of our praise. I thank you now that we can continue our worship as we look to your word. I pray, O God, that you would minister mightily by your Holy Spirit through your word. 
We love your word, Lord God. In it we find life. In it we find instruction, God, for how to live in a way that pleases you and blesses you. And God, we desire to do just that. So would you instruct us today from your living, holy, sufficient word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, well, we continue our journey through the book of James. And this is week number two. So we're going to do a little bit of review again, not as much as we did last week, but it's good for us to spend a little bit more time in the beginning, just kind of setting this book in a proper historical context. It really helps us understand the inner workings of the book as we work our way through it. And so last week we discussed the fact that James is obviously the author of the book. It's titled James. Now, which James is it? There are at least four Jameses mentioned in the New Testament, and we believe this to be James, the half-brother of Jesus. You may not know this, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. And initially, his brothers and sisters, it would appear, did not believe that he was who he claimed to be. In fact, at one point, Mark, it says they thought he was beside himself or out of his mind. And so James was not a believer, but he became a believer. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James after he was raised from the dead. So a special appearance to James. And obviously, I would say after that, he became a, a very real believer and so James, the half-brother of Jesus, he was also a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church there in the early church, and he led that church for about 30 years. He had an intense prayer life such that his knees, they say, tradition says his knees were pretty, pretty uh, scarred up as account of, on account of his praying on his knees, and he was even nicknamed Camel Knees as a result of that. Now, James was ultimately killed for his faith in his Lord Jesus Christ. In 62 AD, the religious leaders there in Jerusalem, we are told, that uh, they told him that he needed to renounce his faith, recant his faith. He refused to do that, so he was thrown off the temple wall, off the temple mount. But he didn't die on impact, so he was beat to death on the ground. Some say by clubs, others say he was stoned, but... Nonetheless, that's, uh, that's how we, we believe he met his end. Faithful to the very end. Now, the book itself, James, is uh, the second in what we call the general epistles. You have Paul's epistles that were typically written to churches or individuals. But then after that, you have a number of letters, epistles, that weren't necessarily written to a particular person or church. And these would be books like James, Jude, First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, and this is a, a relatively short book. It's five chapters. It's 108 verses total. Now, of those 108 verses, there are approximately 50 commands, 50 commands, imperatives, and so that lets us know this is an extremely practical book. Extremely practical. There are 40 references to the Old Testament. So this is a very Jewish book. It was written very early, very early. Um, there are 20 references to the Sermon on the Mount. And as I said, it was written very early. In fact, it's considered to be the earliest written book in the New Testament, somewhere between 45 and 50 A.D. So if Jesus was crucified in 33 A.D., this was written very shortly thereafter, 45 to 50 A.D., and as I had went into great detail last week, there for a time, the church was right there in Jerusalem, and they had not gone out. They had not gone out beyond Jerusalem as they had been commanded by the Lord to do, and so they were very centralized, and Christianity was really seen to just be a subset of Judaism for quite some time, a sect, if you will, of Judaism. And so it makes sense as you read this book that it seems so very Jewish because probably at that point in time the church existed predominantly within the, the Jewish culture, Judaism. It probably hadn't gone into the, to the Gentiles as of yet. Really the theme of this book, I would say, is found in chapter 1 where James says to be not just hearers of the word, but what? 
doers of the word. Very good. I like that. I like that. Y'all, y'all were ready for that. Be doers of the word, not deceiving ourselves. And so with that, it's, a, it's a, just a very practical book. Uh, James is very clear that it's not enough to just know the word. We have to be doers of the word. And that's a, that's a struggle for many of us. It's a challenge. We love to learn. We love to grow. But it's not as easy to actually do the things that we are learning and so James is very, very concerned with that. It's an interesting book. Uh, there's a lot I could say about it. Um, I will say this. It's been referred to as a string of pearls, a string of pearls, meaning that it seems like a lot of disjointed truths that are just strung together. They're marvelous, they're glorious, but they're not necessarily one connected to the other. And some people have even likened this to uh, the Proverbs of the New Testament, if you will, because it is so slam full of so many little pithy sayings and imperatives, things that we must do. But I would argue that there is actually some cohesiveness to it. There are themes that flow throughout this book, but it's not very linear. And so what I mean by that is James will hit on a point, and then he'll move on to another point, but then he'll circle back around. He's very circular in the way that he writes. And so there are main themes that we find in the book of James that he will kind of go back and forth, and some of them are far more connected to one another than you might realize with a cursory reading or glance at the book. And so I intend to kind of point that out as we go. Now, some of the main themes of this book are trials, trials and temptations. There is a distinction, and he is clear with us on how to navigate these things, how to have wisdom, heavenly wisdom in the midst of trials. Our speech, guarding our tongue, partiality in the church, having faith in action. There's quite a bit about prayer, warnings against worldliness, warnings against presumption, presuming upon God, warnings against wealth. Not just wealth, but wealth that leads to self-reliance. And that's what we're going to be talking about in part today and he deals with patience and suffering and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So all very relevant, very helpful things for us to consider. Amen? Written so long ago, but so very relevant even for today. That's what I love about God's Word. It's amazing. It's amazing. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And humans are the same, are we not? We, the, our human nature, there's nothing really new under the sun. And just as relevant and practical as God's Word was nearly 2,000 years ago, it remains on to this very hour. And so I'm excited to work through this little book together with you in the, the book of James. So with that, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the Word. Now last week we looked at verses 1 through 8. 1 through 8. And we talked about trials, meeting trials of various kinds. In chap, uh, verses 2 through 4, James actually says that we ought to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. He says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. So we talked about trials. Trials are difficulties, hardships, calamities that befall all of us. Trials are certain. He doesn't say if you meet various trials. He says when you meet various trials. And so we all face trials of various kinds. And the thing in Before we were walking with the Lord, you probably heard, I'm sure you've heard, and even said, that which doesn't kill us, what? Makes us stronger. Now, there's some truth to that, and we get what is being said there, but for the Christian, it's so much deeper than that, so much more deeper. The Lord is is working in us in ways that we can never even begin to understand as we go through trials. That is God's prescribed method means for shaping us, molding us. It happens through difficulties. It is intended to reveal to us what's really going on in here, who we really are. It's intended to drive us to God in desperation. 
Trials are designed to help us understand and experience for ourselves God's faithfulness in the midst of difficulties and disasters and calamities. And so God is working and He uses trials. I wish God just zapped us and, and just made us sanctified. And at times I'm sure God does work in those ways, but there's really no question God uses difficulties and hardships. So James can say that we ought to count it a joyful thing when we experience hardships and difficulties in this life. Outside of Christ, hardships are miserable, and that's all there is to it. We see no profit in it. We see no worth in it, no value. But in Christ, we recognize that God is working all things together for good, that He doesn't waste anything, and that He uses the difficulties that you're experiencing right now for good, for His glory and for your good. And so we can. That doesn't mean we got to be happy about it. That doesn't mean that we have to walk around just shouting with joy. Let's be real, right? But under all of that, we can have this resolute, this resolute joy that God is in control. He's allowing these things to happen. He's using these things for us, and it is all good. And this is intended to produce what? Steadfastness. Some, some Bible translations may say patience. Now, I prefer steadfastness over patience because I know that we all say we need more patience, and you've probably heard people say, don't pray for patience because the annoyances in life really crank up, and, you know, there are a lot of annoyances in life, and we do need patience, but this is so much more profound than just patience, more than just dealing with petty annoyances. The idea here is being able to withstand the greatest difficulties and not give up. The word is hupomone. It means to bear up underneath a crushing weight and to press on. To let that weight have its work in you. Not to pray yourself out from underneath the difficulties. Not to try to get out from underneath it, but to glorify God in the midst of it and to let God use it to shape you and to make you. Amen? And so that's the intended design of a trial. And it reveals to us where we're actually at. Because when things are good, man, we're just praising the Lord, are we not? God is good. God is faithful. We're just celebrating God's goodness. And then the heat gets turned up. The difficulties come. And all of a sudden, something else comes out. Something that we might not have even known was there if not for the difficulty that came into our lives. And so God tests us in that way. Let me make this distinction here because it's going to come up again. God tests us to reveal what's really going on inside of us and to also grow us, to purify us. This is not the same thing as temptation. God does not tempt us to sin. That's what Satan does. And there is a time when we can test each other. We're told that there are ways in which we can test people. That is a sinful testing, if you will. But this is a, a godly testing that happens to really let us see. God already knows. God doesn't test us so He can see where we're, we're really at. God tests us so that we can know where we're really at. And sometimes we're, we can be pretty discouraged when God allows us to see what's really going on in there. Amen? But you know what? It's God's intention. It's God's design to take us beyond that. He doesn't just reveal things in us so they can say, look at you. Look at you. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. He thought you were so good, right? But no, God doesn't do that at all. God reveals these things to us so that He can bring us past these things, sanctify us, so that He can grow us through the midst of it. Amen? And then in verses 5 through 8, we discussed wisdom. It almost seems to shift entirely from this issue of trials to this issue of wisdom, but I would say that this is wisdom in trials. When we are going through crushing difficulties and hardships, we often need God's wisdom, do we not? We need to know how to navigate these things. Well, James tells us that if any of us lacks wisdom, we can go to God who gives generously 
and without reproach. God desires, God delights to give us wisdom, and we can go to Him for wisdom. And in verse 6, it says, however, we have to ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Listen to this. He says, let not that person suppose they will receive anything from the Lord. So when we come to God, we have to come in faith. We don't say, God, I need wisdom, but you probably won't give it to me anyways. Right? That's, and we may be guilty of that. We may not say that, but that might be what's actually going on in our hearts, and we have to guard against that. James says you can go to God for wisdom, and God will give it to you generously. But don't doubt God. Have faith in God. Trust God. Believe that God will give you the wisdom that you need. Otherwise, you're just double-minded. And I mentioned this last week. You know, what, I, uh, what I lack in being half-hearted, I make up for in being double-minded. And so we're not to be double-minded. Okay, so now we move forward. We're going to move into verse 9. And I would say this is um, really a biblical perspective on being humbled by God, which is a trial, is it not? We've all been humbled, have we not? It's a, it's a trial, but it's a, it's a glorious thing. It's something that this is very counterintuitive uh, it's a very otherworldly way of thinking, but we are to rejoice in being humbled. Rejoice in being humbled. So look with me at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, James deals with the issue of wealth a few times, and he seems to really come down quite hard on the rich man, the wealthy. Now, there's nothing wrong with having wealth. That is a blessing from God. God gives some people great wealth and some of the, you know, some of the most generous people I have met were Christians that God had blessed, and they were always looking for an opportunity to serve God and give to needs around them. But what the Bible warns us against is self-sufficiency, self-reliance. I'm set up. I have all that I need. I don't need God. I'm a self-made person. Don't we admire self-made people? Isn't that something that we in America just look up to and, and really boast in? Well, James says, may it never be. And so he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. So just as it is right for someone who has been made low and is then exalted by God, just as it is right for that person to celebrate, to rejoice, when God raises them up and lifts up their head, it's a beautiful thing. It's something to rejoice in. Amen? It is also fitting for the one who is humbled and brought low to rejoice and celebrate. And this is a very foreign concept. And I don't expect us to just go out and like have this mastered, but I want us to begin to consider this because this is a total reversal. This is a grand reversal. And that is something that Jesus did. He would, he would just turn the, the, the tables, you know, the, the least shall be the greatest. The greatest of all is the servant of all. And we would never think that it's a glorious thing to be brought low. We would never see it that way. But if that's what it takes to break us, to strip us from our own self-reliance and independence, then praise God. Amen? It is a gift. It is a blessing from God to be brought low. Because James says, look, whatever it is that you're boasting in, whatever it is that you're living for apart from God, these temporal treasures, these trinkets, these shiny things that draw us away, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Where will it be on the day that you stand before the Lord? And so James says, beware. Do not let your life be built upon those kinds of things. 
Do not let, don't let that be your treasure here on earth. Christ must be your treasure. Living for His glory, serving His purposes, storing up for heaven, that is what we are to live for here on this earth. And God will bring low those who exalt themselves and who look to themselves in all ways. And so he says it's a glorious thing when that person is brought low. And let me just kind of make this a little more personal. I can say that some of the sweetest times of my life have been when God brought me low. Some of the closest times that I have ever had with the Lord Jesus is when He was all I had. You know, as God adds to our lives, as God gives us good things, those things really compete for our affections. They compete for our devotion and our loyalties to Him. And all of a sudden, Christ becomes drowned out by all of these other things. The heart is an idol factory. We were created to worship, but we worship everything except that which we were created for. And God in His goodness will strip us down at times to remind us of what is most important, and it is Him. I heard a story the other night. Uh, a pastor, Jess and I were listening to a sermon, and he told a story about some explorers in Antarctica that had gone there, and they all, they all died there. And the last guy that died, they found his journal that he was writing in not, right before he died, and he said that he was so overwhelmed by the goodness of God. I mean, let that sink in. How does that work? In his dying moments, he could say that he was overwhelmed by the goodness of God. When God is all we have, we find that God is enough. God is enough. And we experience an intimacy and a closeness with Him that so often we just don't experience when we have all of the other good things in life that we are constantly living for and striving for. And so this is counterintuitive, as I said, but it is a blessed thing when God brings low those who are trusting in themselves and not looking to Him. It's a trial. It may seem like a real trial when God takes away. God gives and God what? Takes away. And it seems it is a trial, but again, we can have joy and we can recognize there's something greater, there's something bigger happening here. That's why Paul could say that I've learned to be content. If I have a lot or if I have a little, I'm content. He said, I can do all things through... Amen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whether I have, am exalted or brought low. The secret is in Christ. So this is a very biblical perspective on being humble. And so I just, you know, who in here is not, life is either coming out of a trial, you're going through a trial, or you will soon be going into one. And so if we can really learn to take these things to heart and exalt and honor Christ in the midst of it and let God do His work in us, we will be so much better off for it. Amen. And look, do we not see Christ in this he who was exalted in heavenly glory from all of eternity past in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit was brought low. He humbled himself. He set aside his glory for a time. He took on flesh. He took on a, a human nature. He submitted himself to the confines of that nature. He was born in obscurity, lived in obscurity, he was betrayed, mocked, abandoned, tortured, killed. He died for the sins of many. He died for the sins of those who, who were rebels against God's goodness. That is us. He rose again from the grave in glory, giving salvation to all who would believe on His name through faith. And because he did that, Philippians 2 tells us that God exalted him to the highest place. Amen. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess. And consider what God was able to do through the humiliation of his own son. The untold innumerable multitudes of lost sinners 
who would be saved, snatched from the flames of hell and redeemed and made into brand new creations, who would become, who would be given the right to be called children of God. That happened because of the great humiliation that the Son of God was willing to undergo. And God exalted him in his obedience to the highest place. And now he's worthy to receive the reward for his suffering. Amen? He is worthy of all of our praise. He is worthy of all of our adoration, all of our devotion, all of our obedience, all of our service. He's worthy of it all. So it's a glorious thing to be brought low when humbled by God. You never know what God is doing. You may be in a very low place right now. You may be being humbled. And I, I tell you, as hard as it is, hope in God, rejoice in God, and recognize that this, you're not going to stay in this place. And God is doing something wonderful that you can't even know right now. But one day you will look back on it and see. I look back at what God has done in my life through the low times when I have been greatly humbled. It's been said, it's doubtful that God can use a man greatly until he has wounded him deeply. We have to be broken. We have to be broken of our pride, of our self-reliance. We have to be broken of everything so that God can put us back together and make us useful for His glory. And so we rejoice in being brought low. Now look at verse 12. This is a, a reward for persevering through trials. Verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So here's a blessing. We've been told that we should have joy when we undergo trials. And now we're told that if we remain steadfast under these trials, we will receive the crown of life. Now this speaks to the glory unspeakable, glory untold that awaits us in eternity on that day when we stand before God and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You persevered. You stood fast. You stayed the course. And of course, we know that that happens by God's grace. God saves us. God keeps us. And the amazing thing is, at the end, God rewards us. Now, how crazy is that? God saves us. God gifts us for His service. God keeps us, and then God rewards us. That is amazing, amazing, our amazing God. And so James reminds us, look, these trials, they're temporary. It's like a blip on the radar in the grand scheme of things. In the face of eternity, what we are going through right now is like a vapor. I really want you to put that in perspective. Life is like a vapor. It's like a puff of smoke. It's gone within a few moments. And so what we really need to be considering and looking to is that which awaits us. And one thing I love that I've seen as people get older, those things become very much more real. People become a lot more concerned with the hereafter. It's a lot more easier for them to fix their eyes on things above where Christ is seated because they know that they are getting there sooner and sooner every passing day. And so praise God that these trials, these afflictions, Paul said, I consider these light and momentary afflictions, they're just, it's nothing in comparison to that which awaits us. Amen? And so James gives comfort and hope in the midst of trials. Now, he shifts to the issue of temptations, the issue of temptations. And there is a distinction to be made. We'll consider these next few verses, and then we'll conclude and turn our attention to uh, baptism. But now we're looking at a biblical perspective when dealing with temptations. So, verse 13, it says, "'Let no one say when he is tempted,' that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. That's a classic verse. And it's a verse that we need to be well acquainted with because this is very important doctrinally, theologically. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God cannot sin. Cannot. God cannot be tempted 
and He Himself does not tempt anyone. So whatever you're going through, whatever kind of temptations you are going through, don't think for a moment that God has brought this on you and that you are being tempted by God. You will often hear people say, God won't give you more than you can handle, right? God won't give you more than you can handle. You ever heard anyone say that before? We've probably all said it. I would argue that. I would say God does, and I talked about this last week, God will give us more than we can handle because God intends to break us, break us in a, in a, good, in a good way, in the good sense of this. And we need more on us than we can handle so that we will run to God. If God doesn't give us more than we can handle, you know what that leads to? Man, I can handle a lot. <laughs> Look at all this I'm handling right now. This is impressive. How much are you handling? I don't know. Probably not as much as me. God does give us more than we can handle. He breaks us of our pride and He drives us to our knees in humble dependence upon Him. Is it 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians where he says that uh, there's no temptation that is uncommon to man, uh, but God will not give you more than you can bear? That's, that's kind of where we get that idea from. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our capacity, but he will absolutely allow us to experience trials beyond our capacity. And there is a distinction. Now, sometimes the same Greek word is used, and it's used interchangeably, but the context kind of demands what, what the, the interpretation of that word is. And there is a distinction between trials, testing, and temptation. And that's what we're seeing here now. So he's moved from trials into the issue of temptation. And when we are tempted to sin, we must know that it's not coming from God. It is not coming from God. Verse 14 tells us where it comes from. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So there it is. That's where the heart of temptation comes from. When we are drawn away. That's the word that the New King James uses. And I, I like that word because it, it speaks of uh, fishing. Fishing, but you know, rather, I like, I like this word better. It says lure. That's the idea, a fishing lure. You cast out into the water and you start to reel the lure in and then the fish sees it and starts to follow it, right? And then the hope is the fish bites and when you, then you reel it in, you got him, right? That's, that's the idea. And so we are lured, we're drawn, we're enticed by our own sinful desires. Our own sinful desires that war within for our affections, we are in the flesh, the Bible says. We are redeemed. We are saved. If you have trusted Christ, you're a new creation. You're born again. But we still live in this body of death, Paul calls it, in Romans chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death, the flesh that we also uh, often call it, this unredeemed humanity in which there is this war between the spirit and the flesh. And in our flesh, we desire those things that God hates. We desire the things that grieve God. And it is to those things that Satan appeals. So we have our enemy, Satan, the enemy of our souls. We have this corrupt, wicked world system that is anti-God, anti-Christ, that also appeals to these desires of the flesh and it is in that weakness, it is to that weakness that we ultimately fall or succumb. And that is what we're drawn away by. And then in verse 15 says that when desire, it says, then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So we see the progression here. We recognize that it doesn't come from God but that it comes from our own desires from within. But when we give in to these desires, it turns into full-blown sin, and sin brings forth death. There's a progression here, folks. And what I want you to understand is you can't be neutral. You can't be neutral. Sin is not neutral. You can't play with it. You understand? You, look, you with me? Not if you're with me. You guys still awake? You cannot toy with sin. 
You cannot compromise because sooner or later you will give in and it will destroy. The Bible says what? The pleasures of sin are for a season. They're temporary. Sin is pleasurable. That's why people do it. But eventually it will destroy you on some level. On some, for some it can be physical death. Absolutely. And so that's why the Bible says don't, who, who can take lo, uh, fire into their lap and not be burned? Nobody. You play with fire, you're going to get burned. And so we need to recognize that sin, wickedness, is deadly dangerous. Deadly dangerous. And you've all heard me tell the story of, you know, I struggled with smoking years ago, and um, one day I decided I'm going to dip. I'm going to do chewing tobacco instead because I'm not convicted by that, just smoking. And I almost got sick. And someone who knew me well saw me, and they were concerned because they could tell something was wrong with me. And so they were like, what, what's going on with you? And I told them, and they were like, okay, aren't you in the, the children's ministry? I said, yeah. He said, aren't, didn't you tell me you're convicted by smoking? And I said, yeah, but this is dip, chewing tobacco. It's not smoking. And he said, what I would love to see you do is to teach those kids how to stay as far away from sin as they can, not how to get as close to it as they can without actually doing it. And that always stuck, stuck with me, okay? We don't flirt with sin. We don't play with it. We don't, and, and I do. I hear people from time to time ask me, how close can I get? Can I, how close can I get and still be a Christian? And that is totally backwards. That is deadly wrong, deadly dangerous thinking. We have to flee sin, Amen. We have to forsake, abandon, run, run away from our sin because it brings forth death. Now, let's just look at these last few verses here. Verse 16, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, recognize this. He already said that temptation doesn't come from God, and then he reminds us that good things come from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So God tests us. God brings trials into our lives for our own good. God does not tempt us, but we're tempted by our own desires because God is good, God is faithful, and every good thing that we enjoy in this life has come from the hands of a loving Heavenly Father to those who are in Christ. And so he says, don't be deceived, like don't get it twisted, don't have this backwards, okay? Temptation comes from Satan, it comes from within your own desires and flesh, but every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That is to say, God doesn't change. We change. God doesn't change. When we're struggling, when we're tempted, when we're backsliding, when we're whatever, we're the ones that changed. God has not. God remains faithful, remains steadfast. He's for us. He's with us. He's working in us. So we need not think that God is tempting us or that God is against us because, verse 18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. He saved us. If you have any question as to whether God is good or for you, He saved you Amen. by His own will. We were not seeking after God. I was not seeking after God, okay? I was doing everything I could to run from God and do my own thing, but of His own will, He brought me forth. What? By the word of truth. Amen? By the gospel, by the word of God. He spoke life into my heart, and He raised this dead man from the grave. He took out this heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I was regenerated, born again by His own goodness, His own faithfulness. And so let us never think for a moment that God is against us, that God is not for us. If you are in Christ, and I make that distinction because if you are outside of Christ, if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, you still stand accountable for your own sin. And God is not for you. The Bible says God is against you. Now, I say that. That's heavy, it's weighty, 
But you need to know that. You need to know your condition so that you can understand and appreciate the great salvation that God has for you. If you would only believe, turn, trust Christ, receive His forgiveness, call upon the name of the Lord, bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And if that is you, then you know God loves you and God is for you because consider the price that He paid to secure you. He gave the greatest thing He had to give. Amen. He gave His one and only Son. Romans says, having known that, recognizing that God didn't withhold His Son but gave Him freely, how will He not then with Him give us all things? God isn't stingy. He didn't say, I've saved you, and now you're on your own. He didn't say, I saved you, and now you've got to keep yourself saved. He didn't say, I saved you, but now I'm just waiting on you to slip up because I'm going to get you. He doesn't do that. No. He doesn't tempt us to sin. God is for us. Every good gift is from Him. Even our salvation, He brought us forth, and He did it by the goodness of His own Glory and grace, the goodness of his own gospel, the power of his own gospel. So God is with us, amen? God is for us. We can navigate trials in this life with great joy because God is for us. We can withstand temptation in this life. Why? Because God is for us and his Holy Spirit lives within us, amen? We can know that God is good no matter what that every good gift is from Him because He's already demonstrated His great love and faithfulness through the cross. Amen? And with that, I'd like to turn our attention to uh, believers' baptism because this is a living reminder to us of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. There are two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church. The Lord's table, which we celebrate each month, where we're reminded afresh of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. As often as we do this, Paul says, that we, re, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's a visible symbol, a reminder for us of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. His body was broken, His blood was poured out. It's a time of confession, a time of worship. Well, this too, believer's baptism is a wonderful reminder. It's extremely significant. It is so rich in what it pictures for us. The believer, the one who has trusted in Christ, the Bible says, has died. We have died with Christ, and we have been buried with Christ, and we have risen again into the newness of life with Jesus Christ. Because Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit. We are united to Christ. We have union with Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit, which means that His accomplishments, His achievements are accredited to us. So just as surely as we can say that Christ died and rose again from the grave, we can say that we too have died with Christ and risen again into the newness of life. And that's what baptism represents, in part, the grave. The person has said, I have died to this world. There's no turning back. I'm being buried with Christ coming up out of the water, as it were, coming up out of the grave into the newness of life as a new creation, a new creature. Now, we don't believe that baptism saves. We believe that we're saved upon the confession of our faith as we trust Christ for salvation, saved by grace through faith. But we are commanded to be baptized. And so if you are saved and not baptized, you have to be baptized to be in full obedience. And so baptism is so incredibly significant. It's such an honor and a privilege to be able to identify with Christ. And that's what it is. As I've said before, and I'll say many times over, it's a public identification, a public declaration that I belong to Christ. I have decided to follow Him, and there is no turning back. The world has nothing for me anymore. And in many parts around the world, many places, that is the point in which you become marked when you are baptized. That is the point in which you sign your own death warrant, essentially, because that is the point in which it's seen that you cross this line and it could spell certain death for you in certain cultures. And so this is a, it's, it's a privilege. It's an honor to be able to, to be named and identify with Christ publicly. Jesus says that if you 
deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. But if you, if you identify with me, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. So that's what we have. We have these two brothers, Jesse and Andre, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. They have trusted in him for salvation. They have decided that they want to walk with Jesus, and they want to identify with him in believer's baptism. Amen? And it's a wonderful thing for the body of Christ to celebrate. And I want you guys to know, we just had five people get baptized a couple weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. This is what God is doing a work here. God is doing a work. These are people whose lives are being saved, being saved, being transformed. They are sick of the world and what the world has to offer, and they want Christ. And we get to witness this. This isn't the work of the flesh. God does that. God saves. God restores, redeems. And we get to see and be a part of what God is doing. We get to celebrate together that God is actively working in our midst. Amen? God is working, and He's working in Calvary Bible Church. I love this church. I love you. I'm just so delighted that we get to come together and exalt Christ and to celebrate what God is doing in our midst. Amen? He's truly faithful. He's truly good. Amen? Father, we love you, and we are so grateful, God, for your faithfulness to us, so grateful for your, your word, grateful for the work that you're doing in the lives of the people in this room. Some, I know you're drawing to yourself even now. They've not yet trusted you, but today is the day they can trust you right now from where they sit. They could confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that you are Lord, asking forgiveness for sins and turning from our sins and turning to you in faith. Lord, you can do that right now. You can save even as people are sitting here. You can turn the lights on and change hearts. You're mighty to save and nobody can stop you from saving. Father, I, I thank you for this awesome opportunity to baptize these two brothers publicly. I thank you for all that it represents, and it just stirs afresh our own affections as we remember what you've done in our own lives. And God, you continue to work. We're new creations, and we're always being made new. We're never new creations that become old. We're always new, always being made new. And so, Father, we rejoice in your good work, your faithfulness, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Is he worthy? Is he good? Hallelujah, he is. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. May he lift up your countenance and may he give you peace. May he go before you this week. May you live the baptized life as one who has died with Christ and risen to the newness of life and has ascended to the right hand even where Christ sits at this very moment. Live to the glory of God and serve your King. Amen. We will see you guys next Lord's Day.